Hi, everyone. This episode was recorded a week ago before we had the news on Monday of the death of Maria Ewing at the age of 71. This one really hit me hard. I've been researching her lately because her daughter has been so much in the news with the release of her new film, and I've been preparing an episode on Maria Ewing, which unfortunately now will be dedicated to her memory. Stay tuned for that. It's coming in a few weeks. I'll continue next week with my series on Canadian singers. Meanwhile, this one is a special birthday tribute. Stay tuned and you'll see exactly what it's all about. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. And now, this week's episode. Hi, everyone. I am so excited because I have something very special and different to offer all my Counter Melody listeners today. We're going to start off, because I always like to jump right in and offer you some music. Here is Joni Mitchell singing Coyote from her 1975 album, Hegira. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios in Europe. Early on your ranch, you'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail. While the sun is ascending and I'll just be getting home with my real career. There's no comprehending just how close to the bone and the skin and the eyes and the lips you can get. And still feel so alone and still feel related. Like stations in some relay, you're not a, a hit and run driver, no, no. A hit you, prisoner of the white lines on the freeway. We saw a farmhouse burning down in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night. We rolled right past that tragedy till we turned into some roadhouse lights where a local band. Locals were up kicking and shaking on the floor The next thing I know That coyote's at my door He pins me in a corner and he won't take no He drags me out on the dance floor And we're dancing close and slow Now he's got a woman at home He's got another woman down the hall He seems to want me anyway Why'd you have to get so drunk and leave me on that way? You just picked up a hitcher, a prisoner of the white lines on the freeway. 
So, I said I had something special for you today. I have not just something, but someone special. I've been talking for some time about featuring distinguished guests talking about music and singers that they love. And so, where better to begin than in one's own home? Yes, I have today my beloved roommate, partner, not boyfriend as he hates being called, David Saverin, the distinguished theater scholar and author who is going to speak with us today. I'm featuring David particularly today because it's his birthday week and I was hoping to do something really special for him and being a person of limited means, I thought that this would be a wonderful way to just give him a platform Welcome, David. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here and excited to share with you today music that was really important to me during the first 25 years of my life. This is a very broad, very Catholic selection. Actually, all everything that I'm playing, I still really, really love. Some of the works actually have become increasingly important to me in terms of my own writing and scholarship, which is interesting. So uh, we started with Coyote by Joni Mitchell from her 1975 album, Hajira, which was really her first seriously jazzy record. And I remember getting it in graduate school when I was at Cornell and actually really disliking it. For some reason, it just didn't speak to me because it was so unexpected. And then a couple of years later, I went back to it and fell madly in love with it, as I have been since. Of course, Joni had been dabbling with jazz a little bit, like the final track of Court and Spark is, uh, what's it called, Twisted, is that right? That was definitely an interest that she was cultivating, but this really went out on a limb and in a different direction. And for me, a really crucial part of that is the presence of Jaco Pastorius on bass, who sort of turns a brilliant song into a really, really brilliant song. Right, and we will encounter him again with Joni at the end of this episode. But meanwhile, let's go back to prenatal David Saffron. Yes, I would like to start where it all began, really, in the womb, because probably about a month before I was born, my parents went to see South Pacific on Broadway with Mary Martin and Itzio Pinza. And I am sure that I didn't perhaps exactly hear the score, but it certainly penetrated to me in one way or another. And well, its reverberations made itself felt. Yes, and it's to that, and it, and it has been reverberating really through my entire life. Yes. Yeah, and so I wanted to start with a short song, perhaps the most political song, actually, that Rodgers and Hammerstein ever wrote. You've got to be carefully taught. And it's sung here by William Tabert, who was the original Lieutenant Cable. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you 
or six or seven or eight to hate all the people your relatives hate you've got to be carefully taught you've got to be carefully taught thank you for that david and what is next on the menu here well when i was a very young boy eddie fisher's oh my papa was a 45 that I played a great deal, as my parents reminded me in later years. And uh, listening to it again for this podcast, I was just thinking how really tacky and horrible the arrangement is. So instead, I'd like to go back to the original, which in fact I have been writing about in a chapter of my new book on the musical Abroad, uh, writing about my favorite German director Herbert Fritsch, who did a production of the operetta Der Schwarze Hecht, The Black Pike, from which this was taken. It's a 1939 operetta. This is a 1950 recording, and this is by, uh, what's her name, Lise? I think it's pronounced Lise Asia. She is the one who put the song on the map. And it was a worldwide hit and then became sort of the inspiration for Eddie Fisher's version, which, of course, is the one that's known best in the U.S. Yes. But this has a very, very special feel to it, and I'm really happy that we're playing her today. So we're going to stick with musicals, it seems. Where are we going next, David? When I was really young, my parents had a record player and actually a pretty large LP collection, including probably a dozen Broadway musicals, virtually all of which they had seen. And one of my very favorites, I would say almost inexplicably, was Kismet, which actually does have a brilliant score and... uh, And brilliant lyrics. Yes, and brilliant lyrics. And I was fascinated as probably a seven or eight-year-old with some of the texts, and I really didn't understand them at all. I mean, actually, for both uh, Kismet and Kiss Me Kate, uh, both with Alfred Drake, who I think was just, for me, was the all-time great Broadway baritone. So I want to play for you a bit of gesticulate. And of course, when I was seven or eight years old, I didn't even know what gesticulate meant. (laughs) But for some reason, I just found this song and this music so stunning. And it was sort of as a little kid listening to this that I really learned about the language. When you tell a story, amorous or gory, 
You can tell it best if you just stick you late. Suppose the mighty Sinbad meets a gin who's been bad. They will guess the rest if you just stick you late. A tongue is a tongue, and a lung is a lung, and a tail that can shout or sing without the gesture. Nothing. Nothing. Should Scheherazade undulate her body, that can be expressed if you just can be assessed if you just. She'll be undressed if you just stick you late. If. I tell you, I was walking by the sea and found a genie in a bottle. That's trite. Right. A practically everyone has seen a genie. Someone had to run in a bottle. Right. But if I say the bottle was so teeny, so teeny, and so was the genie, so was the genie, until with trembling hand I pulled the cork. And threw the jug and covered up my eyes, and the smoke began to curl, and the smoke began to swirl, and it curled and it swirled and it swirled and it curled as higher it did rise, till it was so high. And so was the genie. So was the genie. Then two great arms reached down. And lifted me up, 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 into the sky, and we did fly. The genie and I, we did sail, did sail. Is this a tale? This is a tale. Are you convinced? We are convinced. You see. Listeners will linger. They will be impressed if you just applaud with zest. If you just, if it's a question of a story, gory, Sinbad, Inbad, bottle, smoke, genie, arms, fly, sky high, high state, reiterate, gesticulate. And now we're going to experience something a little bit different, still quasi-musical, yes? Yes. When I was 12, 13 years old, and my parents had always played a lot of classical music, although not too much opera. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, loved opera and was the first person to take me to see an opera. Rigoletto, probably around 62, 63, the Met Tour in Providence. Mm. But one LP that I discovered that I just felt completely in love with was the Porgy and Bess excerpts with Lantian Price and William Warfield. Of all of the great songs and great singing on that, it was in particular My Man's Gone Now, and in particular the ending of My Man's Gone Now that just... Completely took my breath away, and yes. still does. Yes, it's an extraordinary performance. Without any further ado, here we go.
I think all of my listeners probably know by now, the way in which Leontine was my gateway voice into opera. It's wonderful that this is a point of musical congruence that we share. And from here, please, David... Leonard Bernstein has always been really important to me as a composer. And West Side Story was when I first heard it as a pretty young boy. Uh, I was just completely overwhelmed by it, and I still am. For me, it's one of the all-time great theater scores. But I want to play you a bit of Trouble in Tahiti. Bernstein, of course, wrote the text for this, and this is Dinah's first aria. I was standing in a garden, which she sings in her psychiatrist's office. Yes. It's a beautiful, reflective, retrospective, very sad. The recounting of a dream, in fact, that she's had. Right, right. Yeah. So this is from a 1958 recording which is the one I had. Trouble in Tahiti, and we're hearing the extraordinary Beverly Wolf, a U.S. American mezzo, not well enough remembered today, but she was definitely a very important figure in the 50s and 60s. I was standing in a garden, a garden gone to seed, with every kind of weed. There were twisted trees around me, all black against the sky, black and bare and dead and dry. My father called, come out of this place, I wanted to go, but there was no way, no sign, no path to show me the way. to go from the sublime to the I don't know what. What would you call this? <laughs> well, Carmina Burana is a very effective piece. Let's put it that yes. way. Yes. As you often say, 
It does what it does very well. And as a 10-year-old, I thought it was pretty fabulous. I had the Ormandy recording that happened to have Harf Presnell, who was really a Broadway baritone, yes, singing the yeah. baritone part. And I was sort of thrilled. Well, I, I think he was a really good singer, and I think he's really good in this. Yes. But for me, it was so fascinating that a Broadway baritone could sort of moonlight. So you knew that he was a Broadway yes, singer. Yes, yes. You recognized why, him from that. Yes, and that's why I was... Was so he Paint Your Wagon? Is that what he's famous for? I'm trying to remember. I think so. I think it's Paint Your Wagon. If not, sue us. <laughs> You also began attending the theater, didn't you? Yes. And you saw some pretty amazing things. Tell us about this next thing. Yes. For the first 20 years of my life, Broadway musicals were at the center of pretty much everything. And the first Broadway musical I saw in the theater was Golden Boy when it was trying out in Boston. In summer 1964, I went with my parents to a matinee performance, and I was just completely overwhelmed by this. I mean, seeing Sammy Davis Jr. on stage, and it is actually, I think, a wonderful piece with a great score, and Sammy Davis happens to be one of my all-time favorite pop singers, so this is his first big song in the piece, which is called Night Song. Where do you turn when you burn with this feeling of rage? Who do you fight when you want to break out but your skin is your cage? Uptown, just another Joe. Downtown, where you gonna go? That bright tomorrow for a guy like me. Damn. Life is going by, and I stand and musicals that you enjoyed as well. The second musical that I saw on the stage, big production, was the Cycleman Carolyn Lee, Little Me, which I saw the summer of 1965 in London. 
of all places. I think it has a great score, and I think Carolyn Lee is one of the all-time great lyricists. This is the other side of the tracks, Bell's I Want song. And there are two versions of it. There's a slow version, and then about five minutes later, she sings a fast version. And, and this is the reprise, right? This is the, the reprise other side of the tracks. with Virginia Martin. Right, another exceptionally gifted and perhaps not well enough remembered Broadway diva. On the other side of that line, where the life is fancy and free, gonna sit and fan on my fetched bed while the butler bottles the tea. But for now I'm facing the fences and I can't afford to relax cause the whole caboodle commences on the other side. Now you are going to take us into the netherworld of the avant-garde, I believe. Yes. I, for some reason, when I was probably 12, 13 years old, I became really interested in avant-gardist music. And I was acquiring the music of Arnold Schoenberg, for example. And in 1964, I went to a boarding school in Connecticut. And one thing that I would love to do is play Arnold Schoenberg and Mahler. You mean back in the day? Basically to drive people crazy. Um, Were you successful? Or did you merely (laughs) drive yourself insane? (laughs) Maybe both. Well, I I suspect both. (laughs) And for some reason, I discovered Kathy Barbarian and Luciano Berrio, Visage. I fell in love with this piece because this is the first piece I know that is really a woman having sex with a machine. And I think it's pretty clear listening to it. (laughs) But again, what fascinates me about this is the mixture of high culture and sex. Well, yes, that's something that uh, has always interested you. Oh, <laughs> 
Nachrichten und äh, wusstest du? I just want to take a moment here and mention that I also did two episodes in the past year on the great avant-garde diva Kathy Barbarian. And not even a month ago, I also did an episode on Bethany Beardsley, who also was a torchbearer for the vocal avant-garde For those who are interested in that, you can find that on the Counter Melody website. And at this point, I'm just going to do a little advertisement for myself and remind listeners who are interested in supporting the podcast that you can go to patreon.com slash countermelody and become a supporter of the podcast by making either a monthly or a once a year pledge you will gain access to all the bonus material that I have posted. And I am expecting in the next few months that there will be more and more of these kinds of dialogues with other musicians, scholars, experts, and friends talking about the music and the singers that have so moved them. So, once again, go to patreon.com slash countermelody and become a supporter. And now... David has been waiting so patiently to tell us about his next piece. We're going from sex to childhood. Yes. Ravel's L'Enfant et les Sortilèges. I had the LP of the Lauren Mazel performance. I mean, I think it's a breathtaking piece. But one reason why it was so important to me is because I had been learning French at the time. So I could actually begin to understand what they were singing. And that's a very important part for me of actually my interest in opera. Right. And, you know, a fuller understanding of opera, oratorio, art song, all of these things is... And Broadway musicals of Deutsch. Yes, that's something that has increasingly occupied you as well. Anyway, this is the section where the child portrayed here by Françoise Augeas, is having a conversation with the squirrel who has, I believe, been kept away in a cage. And the child is trying to justify itself, saying, but I only put you in the cage because I just loved your tail and you're so beautiful and I wanted to be able to watch you more closely. And the squirrel says, I am supposed to be free and it's not right to keep me in a cage. So... That also maybe spoke a yes, little bit. Yes, yes. Yeah? yeah, to a boy in boarding school, I think. Yes, yes. Deal. Anyway, as David commented, this is from Lauren Mazel's complete recording of this wonderful little opera. I must also mention that Jeanne Berbier portrays the squirrel here. Sais-tu 
I never saw the original cast of Fiddler on the Roof, alas, but my parents did, and they talked about it a lot. I know it was really, really important to them. And Fiddler is a musical that I think is one of the most perfect musicals. And it so happens that I'm writing about it now. In fact, in Germany, in Berlin, writing about Barry Kosky's current, brilliant, overwhelming production of Fiddler, as well as Walter Felsenstein's production from 1971. Also at the 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 Komisch Opa. And uh, I just want to play for you Far From the Home I Love, which is a dialogue between Tevya, Zero Mostel, of course, and Julia McGuinness as Huddle. And Julia McGuinness remains one of my all-time favorite singers. This is how she got her start. So you are leaving your home to join that hero of yours. But why won't you tell me where he is? It is far, Papa, terribly far. He is in a settlement in Siberia. Siberia? And he asks you to join him in that frozen wasteland and marry him there? No, Papa, he did not ask me to go. I want to go. What huddle, baby. But Papa, How can I hope to make you understand why I do what I do? Why I must travel to a distant land far from the home I love? Once I was happily content to be as I was where I was close to the people who are close to me here in the home I love. Who could see that a man would come who would change the shape of my dreams? Helpless now I stand with him watching older dreams grow choice this is, wanting home, wanting him, closing my heart to every hope but his, leaving the home I love. There where my heart has settled long ago, I must go, I must go. Who could imagine I'd be wandering so? Far from the home I love Yet there with my love I'm home And now, ooh la la Well, 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 where are we now, David? That's right. We switched the order a little bit, and that's just fine because it makes perfect sense. So what would you say, David, is the link between Fiddler, which we just heard an excerpt from, and the next piece that we're going to hear? Uh, Mahler was really important to me at the same time, the same period in my life. I don't want to really draw 
any particular analogies here. I was such an incredible Mahler fan that I wrote away and actually became a member of the International Gustav Mahler Society in Vienna. And that was very exciting for me. This is like as a 15-year-old. I just want to play you a very short selection, which is one of Mahler's Rockert songs, Ich atmet einen Linden Duft. And this is the great Judith Raskin. And I bought this LP when I was a kid, and I loved it. someone who very much I consider to be a direct descendant of Mahler's musical language. Absolutely. Alban Berg. And I discovered Lulu, which of course for me also was such a great piece because it combined the avant-garde and sex. Well, in a very different way than Kathy Barbarian and Luciano Berio did. <laughs> yes. yes, indeed. And as an adolescent, I had the recording with Anneliese Rotenberger, and I didn't really know German then. I wasn't taking any German. But the ending of this first scene, I believe, yeah. was so it was so clear to me what was happening, and I just thought that Berg's dramaturgy was so incredibly communicative. Yes, I will mention that Anneliese Rotenberger, of course, was known primarily as a soubrette at this point. So for her to take on a role as sexualized as Lulu was really a game changer for her. She didn't sing too many performances of this, but there were a number of live performances given both in Germany and Hamburg, I believe, and also I think they took it to Canada as well for Expo 67 or something like this. Anyway, I'm not sure exactly where this live performance comes from that was issued on EMI, but we're hearing the end of the first scene of the opera where Lulu is being painted and her elderly husband, Dr. Gohl, comes banging on the door, screaming, I know what you're doing in there, you dogs, you dogs, and then he drops dead of heart attack. So that's the part that we're hearing right now. And also I should mention that Erwin Wohlfahrt is the painter and a wonderful singer he was. <laughs> 
kennt die Welt nicht mehr. Without talking about Schoenberg. Schoenberg. As I said, I had a few volumes of Robert Kraft's music of Arnold Schoenberg, and one that I particularly loved was volume three, and this very short piece, uh, Schoenberg's Opus 20, called Herzgewächse. Or Herzgewächse. Whatever. Close enough. Yes. Close enough. Um, and this is, it's, it's a very short piece with a stratospheric soprano role, really beautifully sung by Rita Tritter. I just need to say one thing. I'd never heard of this Rita Tritter. I have no idea who she is, who she was, what she did beyond this recording, but she is fantastic here. And we're offering the portion of the piece, the very short piece, where she goes way up to a high F. And this was another piece that was very effective at torturing my roommates in boarding school. Oh, yeah, I bet it was.
we were just listening to a certain kind of high note. Now we're going to hear a couple other earth-shattering, world-altering high notes. What would you like to say about these? Well, my introduction to Puccini was listening to the Met broadcast of Turandot on the radio. And I was just, of course, completely blown away by that with Birgit Nielsen and Franco Corelli. This was, I believe, in 1963, and the live recording is available now for those who want to hear it. But we're going to be hearing a little bit from the studio recording that followed in 1967 with both of these extraordinary singers. Yes, who were just completely chewing up the scenery. And it's sort of Puccini on steroids, which is actually how I think Puccini is usually best. sport. And these two, Corelli and Nielsen, really were almost like prize fighters in the ring together. There are so many wonderful stories of the two of them really locked in almost life or death combat. But there is a much gentler, more subtle side of music making as well. And this was another thing that really made a strong impression on you. Yes, if Turandot was my gateway drug for the world of opera, then for Lieder, it was actually an LP I bought of selection of uh, German Lieder sung by mostly German singers on Deutsche Grammophon with lots of Schubert and Brahms and Schumann and so on. And I didn't really know any of this work at all, but I did discover Hans Hotter singing Frühlingstraum. For me, his performance of that great, incredibly dramatic song actually remains definitive. Hans Hotter recorded Winterreise at least four times. This is his third version, recorded in December, appropriately, December 1961, with Eric Verba at the piano. <laughs> Die 
Now, David, I think it's time to turn the page. Rock and roll, which I must say, I did not like really at all until I went to Kent. And I was there indoctrinated because all of my friends were basically listening to rock and roll. And I got to like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and a number of other groups. But always my favorite was the Birds. I think it was a combination of Roger McGuinn's 12-string guitar and just the sort of gorgeous, sensual quality of that, the the jingle-jangle sound with the very lush vocal harmonies of the birds. And this is uh, a song that was not a huge hit for them, Eight Miles High, which they denied was about drug use, but which is so obviously about drug use. It's also about a trip they made to London. Even more art rock than the birds. Yes. Uh, the Mothers of Invention, led by Frank Zappa, whom I discovered probably in 66. There was something about the Dada quality of their early work that I found really fascinating. Rock and roll as Dada. And for me, actually, their best album was their second album, Absolutely Free. And I just want to play you actually three songs that are linked, that are really part of one piece. Well, it's a sequence of songs that really form a Yeah, it's a kind of ABA unit. unit. And one thing that I find really interesting about this is that Zappa is very much using the conventions, not only sort of of American pop standards of the time, but specifically of Broadway. 
because when it comes back, it comes back very much as a kind of Broadway, up-tempo reprise of the song. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of love the complete absurdity of this piece. Frank Zappa was always leaning toward legitimacy, and in the central, mostly instrumental part, we hear two references to Stravinsky. Right, which was really important to me because what I was interested in, even as a 16-year-old, was the legitimation of popular music, sort of how that happens. Yes, and that has remained a very strong interest of yours. Yes. I'm gonna be through the in June. your
So now, <laughs> now from Frank Zappa to one of the best girl groups ever. Yeah, the Supremes were always my favorite Motown band. And uh, You Keep Me Hanging On remains my favorite Supreme song. As it is mine. Set me free, why don't you pay? My favorite pop singer of all time. Do speak about the one number of Dusty Springfields that you love. Yes, in 1967, when The Look of Love from Casino Royale was released as a single, I completely fell in love with it. And I just thought it was such an incredibly gorgeous, sexy song. And so I just assumed after that, well, because I knew that Dusty Springfield was singing it, I assumed that I would like everything else that she sang. Then I discovered, in fact, that that is the only song of hers that I really like. (laughs) This is not allowed on my podcast. (laughs) I don't know what I am going to do with this person. Friends, we've got to make him see the light. I tried. I did two big dusty episodes about a year ago and alas to no avail. This is probably my least favorite dusty song, but it is a great song. It's Burt Backrack and Hal David. I mean, how can you go wrong? So this is one point vis-a-vis Dusty Springfield. The only point on which David and I are in agreement. The look of love. The look of love is in into another, shall we, Dave? Yes, Janice Ian, from her first album, 1967, she was, God, about 15, 16 years old. She was really young. It was on Verve, and it was sort of 
And I was fascinated with Janicean. One, because she's a really good singer. Two, because she was so New York. And it was so much this world of sex and adulthood and all of the things that were tantalizingly close to me, but out of reach. This is actually a, a very Bob Dylan-ish kind of song, and it's called Lover Be Kindly. I walk in a gutter, love, all up and down. Little drop of water's all it takes to bring me down. To the swallow, hovering at your brow. If my enemies don't get me, my friends will know how. In love, be kind. I'm too old to die, and I'm too young to cry. Love, 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 be kind. visit to another female my, pop icon. My, my favorite rock diva of the 1960s was Grace Slick of the Jefferson Airplane. I loved pretty much everything that she did. And on their third album, After Bathing at Baxter's, she does a song called Rejoice with a lowercase r. And, and Joyce as in James Joyce. As in James Joyce. And the text of this is adapted from Ulysses. And this is another example of that mix of high and low that I found really Indeed. fascinating. And it's, it has a very peculiar lyric, a very strange lyric that's not completely comprehensible. But one thing that I loved about a lot of this artsy rock of the 1960s is the fact that the lyrics were so difficult, one, to understand, and two, to make sense of. And there was something about having that challenge of figuring this song out that was always just so important and so exciting for me. I think you're gonna read a little bit of the lyric for us, right? Uh, Molly's gone to blazes, Boylan's crotch amazes. Any woman whose husband sleeps with his head all buried down at the foot of his bed. So sex again. Sex, rock and roll, drugs, art. 
Molly's phone to blazes, Boylan's crotch amazes, and a woman whose husband sleeps with his head all buried down at the foot of his bed. I've got his own. Mother's farm was good business, so give your son, and I'd rather have my country die for me. strongly drawn to these singer-songwriters. Here's another one. I think you'd like to say a few words about him. One of my favorite singer-songwriters of the 60s was Tim Buckley. And I think, in particular, his first two albums were so gorgeous. Clearly, I was really a fan of folk rock and of sort of acid rock. And Tim Buckley, I think, actually combined both of those. And this is from his second album. It's the last song on the album called Morning Glory. It's a narrative song. And Tim Buckley also, I think, had one of the sweetest, most beautiful tenors. Uh, he was a really, really great singer. So, Morning Glory. I lit my purest candle close to mine window hoping it would catch the eye of any vagabond who passed it by and I waited in my fleeting house before he came I felt him drawing near and as he neared I felt the ancient fear that he had come to wound my door and jeer And I waited in my fleeting house Then you be damned, I screamed to the hobo Leave me alone, I wept to the hobo Turn into stone and out to the whole world. You walked away from the fleeting
some contact earlier with David Crosby? I do believe we did. Yes, of course. He was one of the birds. As far as I'm concerned, by far the most important and the most talented. And Crosby became part of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. But this is from his first solo album from 1971. It's a song entitled Laughing. I must say, this album came out during what was probably the lowest point in my life. And I was so unbelievably miserable. And actually, I found that this album spoke to me. One of the things I love about this song is the incredibly lush sound carpet that the musicians create. And it includes Jerry Garcia on um, slide guitar. I thought I met a man who said he knew a man who knew what was going on. I was mistaken. so many of the things that we've been listening to today. And that is that when memory is involved, the power of the music is just enhanced by that nostalgic reference, the thinking back to those days in which this music was so important. And I think that so many of us have this kind of association, maybe even with some of the songs we've been talking about. This is one of the really lovely things about this conversation and about this sharing of music. So I realized shortly after 1971 that one of the reasons why I was so miserable is because I was in the closet. So I started coming out around 1972 when I went to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon. In the summer of 1973, I spent a wonderful summer in New York, and that's when I really came out. And it was great fun in 1973. And I remember going with two dear female friends of mine to what was then the Gay Activists Alliance Firehouse, which was a kind of disco then on Worcester Street in Soho and we would dance the night away and my favorite song from the summer of 1973 was Armed and Extremely Dangerous by First Choice which I think is a Philadelphia based yes uh, yes yeah, yes. uh, disco group. Yeah. Forgive me, I haven't done my research, but whoever that lead singer is, man, can she wail. I love her.
The more romantic side of that summer, for me, is really encapsulated in Stevie Wonder's work. His album, Inner Visions, came out that summer, which I still think is one of the all-time great rock albums. And I just want to play for you probably the most romantic song from that that I also think is really gorgeous, titled Golden Lady. Hands can understand Waiting for the chance Just to hold your hand A touch of rain and sunshine Made the flower grow Into a lovely smile that's blooming And it's so clear to me That you're my dream come true There's no I've been losing And golden lady Golden lady I'd like to go Davies out there getting all gayified. Were there any other important musical elements Well, to back that? in Pittsburgh, I discovered Bette Midler. I don't remember whether this was 72 or 73, going to see her perform with, what was her backup group? Oh, the Harlots? Yeah, the Harlots in Pittsburgh. And it was just one of the most thrilling, fabulous performances I've ever attended. I really love the song that leads off her first album. And so I'd like to play it for you. Do you wanna dance and hold my hand? Tell me you're my lover man, oh baby. Okay. 
You Wanna Dance by Bette Midler. Now, I think we're going to take a step in a different direction and go back to opera for a few selections. Yes, Dave? Yeah, well, this is a kind of sidestep because at the same time that I was going to see Bette Midler, I had an opera fellowship at Carnegie Mellon, which meant that I was directing, working with music students because I was a directing student, and in particular working with Rudolf Fellner, who was the head of the opera program, who was a Viennese, very strict, incredibly brilliant and difficult man. And I learned so much from him. Uh, but also very opinionated. Oh, extremely <laughs> opinionated. <laughs> As these things e- often go Extremely hand hand. opinionated. And I directed actually a full production of Marriage of Figaro, which was a challenge, but which came off okay. At the time... I wasn't sure what recording of Figaro to listen to. So I had the Giulini with Schwarzkopf and Anamafo. But one thing that was interesting to me was when I was talking to Rudy about these recordings, I also mentioned to him, of course, the Kleiber recording. With that is Erich Kleiber, of course. With Lisa Della Casa. That and beautiful, glamorous Swiss soprano. Who is absolutely one of my all-time and favorite one, yes, singers. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and Rudy's response was, well, she's so boring. Listen to Schwarzkopf. For better or worse, I took his advice. Although we did not see eye to eye on everything, he really was a great mentor. Yes, and eventually you did return to your beloved Lisa Della Casa. Yes. And here she is singing a portion of Porcia Amor. Directing Marriage of Figaro was such a revelation for me because I really got to understand Mozart's musical dramaturgy and how absolutely brilliant that is. That if you listen carefully to the score, his operas basically stage themselves. There are so many moments that I could point to, but one, for some reason, that I find particularly thrilling is from Don Giovanni, the end of Madamina, as Leporello is taunting Donna Elvira. And at the very end, when he's really digging into her, on the Colin Davis recording with Vladimir Gansaroli as Leporello, you hear the way that he foregrounds the woodwinds at the end of this, the sort of quacking woodwinds that seem to be mocking Elvira 
is, for me, such brilliant musical dramaturgy. Yes, and I just want to say one little thing about that. It's when Leporello sings, Voi sapete quel che fa. You know what he does, you know how he is. And the way that Colin Davis phrases the cackling, it's almost a sforzato on the first one and then backs off. I've never heard anybody else do it quite that way. And it's such a brilliant way of characterizing this very element that David was just talking about. This next piece that David is going to talk about is another one. This recording and this opera changed my life. Take it away, David. Tell us about what we're going to hear now. Well, I fell in love with Peleas et Melisande through Boulez and Siderstrom and George Shirley. In particular, one section of this recording that I always found so miraculous was the end of, what is it, the third scene of the first act, which is the first scene between Peleas and Melisande. That's Just right, at the very end, yeah. as they hear the ships in the distance... The ship that has brought her is going off now. Oh, yes. And in fact, the excerpt begins with the words, that's the ship that brought me, as they watching it as it goes off into the distance. And they're just passing time, and Debussy has the most sort of amazing interlude for them. And then Peleas tells her that he has to leave soon. And her Je reaction... Je peut-être demain. I'm leaving tomorrow, maybe. Yeah. And, and her response is, pourquoi... And there's something about just the breathtaking simplicity of that that I just yes. think is, it's, is, it's, is, is as great as music gets. Exactly.
here's another singer. Well, I don't even know how to introduce this artist. David, do you have what can you tell us about well, Maria? Well, I mean, so this is the back to the early 70s again. And of course I heard all about Maria Callas. I thought, oh God, I've really got to get to know her. She's really important if I'm working in opera. Um, and so I started listening to Callas and it was so difficult for me. I mean, I just found it not a pretty sound and I just didn't really get what she was doing. I was thinking, what? People are going gaga over this? Until I heard her second studio recording of Norma. That is at the very end of her recording career, but it was in fact listening to Casta Diva and her phrasing of that, that it finally clicked for me and I understood what it was that made Kalas Kalas. What Kalas had to my ear was a voice that was often problematic. She had more or less the right kind of technical control over the voice, but it was a recalcitrant voice. But yet in spite of that, she managed to phrase in the most extraordinary way, so that you had the impression that you were listening to a Rolls Royce of a voice. And I personally do think it was a Rolls Royce of a voice. Even when the voice was not completely cooperating with her, she still managed to create that illusion. With this next singer, we have a singer who had the most extraordinary vocal quality. This is a singer that David loves so much and turned me more and more onto. I was always an admirer, but please, what can you tell us about Mozart? Well, after Carnegie? Carnegie Mellon, I went to Cornell for my PhD. When I was there, I started listening to Mozart Caballé and just became an incredible 
incredible, incredible fan. And there are so many great recordings. All I need to say is the pianissimi and the breath control. Yeah. But there are so many other things as well. And I think from that period, my favorite recording of hers was a London LP. I think it was released on London. It was originally yeah. recorded for Hispavox or something like that in Spain. This was called, I think, Dramatic Soprano Arias, right? I think so, yes. Yeah. And she included D'Amour Sulale Rosé from Trovatore. And I really think that her phrasing of the last part of that is one of the most miraculous, superhuman pieces of singing I've ever heard. Yes, and here in this recording as well, she actually tries and almost manages to sing some pretty decent trills, which is not something that was normally part of her vocal arsenal. Now we're going to uh, have a different from, kind. from the sublime to the ridiculous. Well, I'm, actually, yeah, kind of. Except that the next singer, for me, encapsulates both the sublime and the ridiculous. But I, I just want to comment, David, that a number of things that we have been listening to today combine the sublime and the ridiculous in the most delicious way. But I think this might be the prime example of that. Post-Cornell, I was teaching full-time in Canada and visiting a friend in Boston. And we were driving somewhere in downtown Boston and listening to the radio. And my friend has very good and very sophisticated taste in rock and roll. All of a sudden, this singer came on, and we were both, our jaws 
just dropped to the floor. We'd never heard any singing like this before. And it was a female voice, and it seemed to be in German. And we were so fascinated by this that we stopped at a restaurant and went in, and I used a payphone to call the radio station to find out who the singer was. And it turns out, of course, that it was Nina Hagen. Uh, from her second album, actually, Unbehagen. But what I want to play you tonight is from her first album, The Nina Hagen Band. And this is her song, which I guess you could call a kind of redoing of a German lead, really. It's Nature uh, Trena, sort of the, the tears of nature. And the text of it is actually very Schubertian, but the music is not... Not quite. And Not of course, quite. <laughs> it's more like one of Strauss's Brentano leader or something like that yeah. in terms of range yeah. and uh, yeah. sort of outrageousness. Yeah. <laughs> but and it then, goes far beyond that. <laughs> and another thing that, I mean, I still adore Nina Hagen and I've seen her a number of times. Do you remember we saw her on New Year's Eve a number of years yes. ago now oh my at, God, the, yes. at, the, um, at the Berliner Ensemble? Yes. I think yes, her mother right. worked. Eva Marie Hagen was one of the big actors right. at the Berliner Ensemble right. at that time. So she, Nina Hagen has had her ups and downs, and she was not maybe at her most no. completely lucid that night. No, but um, I did see her back in the day, probably around 1980 or 81, at the Mud Club in New York, which was really, really cool. And as I recall, she was wearing a shower curtain for the performance. <laughs> currently a bass <laughs> but uh, you know there's another singer that we heard at the very top of the program who also began as a light lyric soprano and now in her later albums is also a bass and that's Joni Mitchell we'll be hearing her in one moment but first David has another really important singer to yeah introduce us um, to. for the next to last song I want to play you a song by Sandy Denny from her 1971 album The North Star Raven and the Grassman. Sandy Denny, I would describe her as another almost acid folk 
kind of singer. I think she was an absolutely brilliant singer and songwriter. One of the many things I love about this song is that it's another one of those songs with a really obscure lyric, but for some but reason. Yeah. Yes, it's very precise and specific, and there's a kind of emotional clarity to it that I think is really brilliant and really unusual. And really sits interestingly alongside the sort of obscurity of the words. Yes, Nevertheless, the exactly. emotional clarity. I just exactly. I was listening to exactly. this today and uh, finding myself almost unable to breathe. It's just so breathtaking. Yeah, and also, of course, there is so much bad pop music, or even good pop music, uh, rock music, rather, that uses string accompaniment and this has a very elaborate string arrangement and this I think is actually a brilliant string arrangement that at times almost sounds more like Mahler than Montevani. Or maybe like for a chamber music or something. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really extraordinary. Then came the question and it was about time The answer came back and it was the house it was built by some man in a line, but whatever came of his talented David, we have already arrived at the end of our program. Maybe this is a slightly longer program than I normally offer, and God knows I have trouble keeping things down anyway, but it, it's been such a joy to go around the block with you with all of this music that has meant so much to you. And also, it has been interesting for me to realize how many points in common there are between the music that you love and the music that I love. And I think that this is one reason for our unending and undying friendship is the commonality of taste that you and I share. Perhaps you'd like to describe this last song that we're going to hear. 
I want to close with the title song from Hijra. Hijra, by the way, refers to Muhammad's escape, I think from Mecca to Medina or Medina to Mecca, I don't remember. What it is basically is an escape and a kind of liberation. This song of Joni's is very much about, it's right after the end of a relationship as she's saying goodbye and as she's feeling free and regretful and all of the many things that one feels at the end of a relationship. Another thing I want to say about this album is that I spent 10 years teaching in Regina, Saskatchewan, and Joni is from Saskatoon, which was just a hundred miles away. And so for me, this album is so intensely Saskatchewan. There's something about this that so evokes the beauty of the prairie and the open skies and the amber waves of grain, which is one reason why I so love Joni's work from this period, from the late 1970s, 1980s, is that it's much more Saskatchewanian than early work, interestingly. Thank you, David Saverin, so much for being my guest today. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Here's Joni Mitchell with Hejira. I'm traveling in some vehicle I'm sitting in some cafe A defector from the petty wars It shall shut up there's comfort in melancholy When there's no need to explain It's just as natural as the weather In this moody sky today In our possessive coupling so much could not be expressed So now I am returning to myself These things that you and I suppressed I see something of myself in everyone Just at this moment of the world The snow like bolts of lace Waltzing on a ballroom girl I'm traveling in some vehicle I'm sitting in some cafe
my dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gwintlach. <laughs>